The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please be seated. When my daughter Eliana was a little girl, she had a knack for seeing things the rest of us could not. It wasn't that she was seeing imaginary things, mind you. Rather, she saw things invisible to the rest of us. I clearly remember her staring intently at her plate during our meal one evening. I asked what she was doing, and she said, Mommy, there's a tree in my food. I went over and looked and looked, and when she pointed it out to me, sure enough, there was a tree in her food. Not a tree that she had created, but there amidst the potatoes and gravy and green beans, a beautiful trunk emerged with branches rising to the plate rim. She saw the food on her plate differently. She found a pattern that was invisible to me. Eliana's ability to see differently didn't stop in childhood. She has an eye for patterns and detail and structure. She can sketch a red-winged blackbird in flight. She can visualize otherworldly creatures and manipulate pixels into gorgeous graphic art. She can take plywood and black paint and create a 3D table that would look at home in the Museum of Modern Art. And whenever we go hiking, she's the first to spot a well-camouflaged frog or a distant hawk in the sky or a tiny flower. She sees an entire world that is invisible to the rest of us. Today, we celebrate the reign of Christ, or as some call it, Christ the King Sunday. This celebration is actually a fairly recent addition to the liturgical year. It was created by Pope Pius XI in 1925, partly in reaction to nationalism and secularism at the end of World War I. Knowing that this day's establishment was a form of resistance makes me feel a little better about it, despite the king language, which can seem antiquated, overtly masculine, and imperialistic. But when we think of this day as a celebration of a different sort of kingdom, a kingdom that requires us to see differently, it seems a fitting prelude to the season of Advent, which is all about anticipation and arrival. Our gospel text seems somewhat incongruous with the theme of kingship because it is about Jesus' resurrection, excuse me, crucifixion, rather than, say, his ascension in glory to heaven. But Luke is indeed talking about kingship in his account of the crucifixion. Rather than emphasizing the gruesome details of the event, Luke chooses to focus on Christ as king. One of Luke's purposes in his gospel is to contrast the reign of Christ with the reign of the Romans. 
For example, in chapter 19, Luke describes Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, not as a triumphal entry, but as a parody of the entry of a Roman ruler. Instead of riding into Jerusalem from the west on a powerful stallion like the Roman governor, Jesus rode in from the east on a donkey. Unlike the spectacular scene of a Roman army, weapons in hand, colorful banners waving, Jesus ambled down a dusty street strewn with cloaks of the poor. And as he entered the city, his disciples shouted, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But Jesus looked nothing like a Roman king, just the opposite. Luke's crucifixion scene is a bookend to Jesus' humble entry, and it too is a parody, a parody of a king's enthronement. Consider these details. Herod, as a joke, dressed Jesus in a majestic robe. Simon of Cyrene bore the cross, much like Roman slaves might have borne the litter of a Roman emperor. Jesus was nailed to the cross, a crude mockery of a throne. His throne name posted in sarcasm above him, this is the king of the Jews. Roman soldiers, Jesus' cupbearers, cynically offered him sour wine. Jesus was flanked not by royal officials, but by two criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Instead of courtiers bowing in reverence before their king, they mocked him. The leader scoffed, saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers shouted, if you are the king of Jews, save yourself. And one of the criminals demanded, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Save yourself, save yourself, save yourself. This trinity of demands parallels the crowd's repeated cries, crucify, crucify, crucify. The entire episode is a grotesque parody of a king's enthronement. Almost everyone present saw Jesus as a criminal, a blasphemer, and an abject failure. Almost everyone. In a scene recorded only in Luke, one of the criminals suffering the torture of crucifixion saw differently. Somehow he saw what was invisible to everyone else. Rebuking his fellow criminal, he declared Jesus' innocence. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, he asked? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. The criminal saw Jesus crucified, humiliated, dying, but recognized somehow in Jesus' utter powerlessness, power. Jesus, he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man looked past the parody and saw a king, not a criminal, a savior, 
not a victim. He saw Christ's invisible kingdom, and he dared to ask Jesus to remember him when he came into this kingdom. What audacious vision to see all this while suffering tortuous death. The criminal had paradox eyes. He could see a supernatural reality that was the opposite of the physical reality all around him. In response, Jesus bestowed on the criminal a kingly bequest. Today, you will be with me in paradise. What irony. While everyone around these two central figures looked on, unseeing, mocking, and jeering, the criminal declared Jesus king, and Jesus in turn bestowed paradise on a criminal. Notice that Jesus said, today you will be with me. As he hung dying, Jesus promised a present paradise. The king was on his throne. His kingdom was a present reality. Even while he was dying, Christ was already reigning, crying out to his royal father to forgive these people for they did not know what they were doing. As we prepare for the seasons of Advent and Christmas, let us carefully examine our ability to see, not physically, but spiritually. Do we have paradox eyes? The kingdom of God is so easy to miss, obscured as it is by the parody of the commercial Christmas season, by economic and political instability, by injustice and poverty and sickness, and violence. It can be hard to believe that Jesus reigns when our world continues to erupt in chaos. We need to develop eyes that can see the invisible, eyes that can see the paradox of a kingdom that is not of this world, but is a present reality in this world. With paradox eyes, we can see through the parody into the invisible reality of Christ's reign. How do we develop paradox eyes? I believe it starts with closing our physical eyes to the gaudy store displays all around us, shutting our ears to the raucous sounds of the commercial season, and sitting in darkness and solitude where we can experience quiet. Whether early in the morning or late at night, we must seek out the darkness, embracing it and finding our senses heightened by it. And then we can listen to the Holy Spirit's whispers, asking her to enlighten us to the kingdom of God all around us. As we walk each day of Advent, we must intentionally seek out the invisible, seeing differently, looking for the patterns of Christ's reign in the here and now amidst ugliness, hatred, and hopelessness. When we concentrate on seeing with paradox eyes, we are making ourselves open to the thin places where heaven and earth intersect.
Let us pray. O oh Jesus, ruler of the invisible kingdom, open our spiritual eyes and make them paradox eyes, eyes that can probe past the parody of our human reality to see your reign present in the here and now. Help us to seek out the thin places, the invisible patterns of your presence, and let us be witnesses calling others to look and see that Jesus Christ reigns. Amen.